Welcome to the Lone Mama Book Club. My name is Mara, and I'm a new mom to the coolest little dude, Rowan. Motherhood can be so many things at once. Beautiful, heartbreaking, joyful, frustrating, unifying, and isolating. I created this club to build a community amongst book-loving moms and pave a way for us to discuss some of our favorite or not-so-favorite reads. Our books focus on coming of age, womanhood, and motherhood. My hope is that this community will help make even just one fellow mama not feel so alone. Although our journeys may look different, we are all in this together. So take some new time, grab a book, and let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Lone Mama Book Club. Today, we'll be delving into The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. So go on and pour yourself a glass of peach bourbon, and let's bite right in. I'm going to come right out and say it. I do not love this book. I'm not even sure I like it, to be honest, which is such a bummer. My rating for this book, if I had to give it one, would be one out of five stars. In this episode, we'll go over what the book is about, what I liked about it, and what I didn't, as well as answer a few listener questions I received from episode one. I want to also provide a disclaimer that this book contains murder, assault, both physical and sexual, and gore. So if this isn't a book for you, or you don't want to continue in the discussion, I understand. So I initially grabbed this book because of the title. I mean, what kind of Southern gal would I be if I didn't include a book titled The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires in my book club? I normally don't read horror books. However, I do like to expand my horizons every now and again, and I occasionally love a good vampire story. Hello, Southern Vampire Mysteries, aka the True Blood series. I also really enjoyed the cover. But how does that saying go? Don't judge a book by its cover? Well, in this case, I should have listened. So what is this book about? The storyline follows five women who form a book club, and not a traditional one at that. They read mysteries and mostly crime novels. However, Patricia is our main girl. Patricia has got a lot on her plate. She's a mom of two. She's taking care of her senile and quickly deteriorating mother-in-law. And she cooks, cleans, runs errands, schedules appointments. You know, she's a stay-at-home mom. Which, let's just take a second to shout out to all the stay-at-home parents out there and all their hard work. She does this all while her husband is off working. And I'm air-quoting here because that's debatable. It's suburbia to the nth degree. When all of the sudden weird events start happening, Patricia is attacked viciously by an elderly neighbor. Children start to go missing, and a new mysterious stranger comes to town. Patricia's attack changes her view on her community and how safe she feels in it. But more and more hauntingly bizarre events keep occurring until Patricia feels obligated to figure out what is happening to her town. The amount of positive reviews for this book alarms me, and I'll tell you why. This book tries to tackle several controversial topics, and it really falls short for me. Some of them being sexism, inequality, motherhood, and womanhood. 
all of which are terribly represented. I mean, you have to be an excellent author to write a book on these topics as a white male, right? It really just hits different when these subject matters are coming from a privileged white man, and not in a good way. Trying to focus on the good things. One, it's an original take on toxic masculinity in society, among other things, using a vampire to symbolize all of these problems wrapped into one person or being in this case. Unfortunately, spoiler alert, it's not very effective in my opinion. Two, the novel starts off okay. The author's note is intriguing and witty, and it appears that he's dedicating this tale to his mother. Aw. The author states, With this book, I wanted to pit a man freed of all responsibilities but his appetites against women whose lives are shaped by their endless responsibilities. I wanted to pit Dracula against my mom. As you'll see, it's not a fair fight. Sounds pretty cool, huh? That's probably the coolest part of the book, and it's not even the story. It literally goes downhill from there. Three, I think this book does show what emotional abuse and gaslighting can do to someone. We slowly see Patricia start to deteriorate in front of us. She goes from a capable, mostly present mom who builds relationships with her friends to someone who constantly doubts her capabilities, thoughts, and feelings. This decline is a classic result of trauma, stress, emotional abuse, and gaslighting. Four, I think this book also shows our heavy reliance on the pharmaceutical industry to fix people. It shines a spotlight on the big void mental health awareness has in the American culture. Five, it is a reminder that we all have a different perspective on ourselves, others, and the world. I may see myself as one thing, but my brother will see me as something else, as will my husband, mother, coworker. You get the idea. It begs the classic question do we ever really truly know someone? Six, it also focuses on the timeless phenomenon of the bystander effect. The bystander effect is a social psychological phenomenon that occurs when The presence of others prevents or discourages someone from intervening in an emergency situation. A big theme throughout this novel is discussing how individuals with ill intent were able to blend so seamlessly into their communities. People were, and are, more likely to turn a blind eye to little alarming signs if, as a whole, the community finds this person acceptable. Seven, intentionally or not, this book also shows how harmful it is to believe societal norms. One biggest misconception out there is how we label children's developmental milestones. Terrible twos or sulky, hard-to-handle teenagers. By creating and believing these labels, parents often disregard children's feelings and experiences. Parents may think, my teenage daughter's being moody because of hormones when really she could be being bullied at school or going through a tough time with a friend or significant other or even just had a rough exam. When we put labels on our children, we're not only missing out on what's really going on, but our children will start to absorb that label 
as part of their identity, and that can be extremely harmful. That's about where the good ends for me, although let's add a number eight to the list. Number eight goes out to my favorite character of this novel, Ragtag the Dog. He was loyal, low drama, and he didn't have any speaking lines, which is a win for this book. Oof, that was a burn. Now, playing devil's advocate here, I think I get what Grady is trying to go for. He's trying to use the vampire character to represent toxic societal ideas and standards and show how these ideals restrict and oppress women and people of color. Good idea in theory, but horrible execution. Take Grady's depiction on racism and people of color, for example. In the book, all the Black characters are working-class individuals who live in an impoverished area of town. Most are uneducated, and every single character that dies, with one exception, is Black. Now, on a higher level, maybe it would seem that Grady is accurately illustrating racial inequality in America. But let's specifically look at Mrs. Green. Mrs. Green is the caretaker of Patricia's mother-in-law. She experiences some horrible events throughout the novel and lives in the impoverished community. She begs for assistance from law enforcement and Patricia to help her find out what's happening to the children of that community as the children are getting sick, disappearing, and being murdered. Which, okay, this does sound like the struggle of many Black people in America. But what makes me doubt Grady's intentions is that Mrs. Green plays a significant role in stopping the vampire at the end of this book. Without Mrs. Green, we wouldn't have much of a story. But Grady has created such a weak narrative for her. In fact, the last chapter is dedicated to seeing how each book club member is faring after it all. Which Mrs. Green didn't even get to be a book club member, by the way. Now for this last chapter, she only gets one sentence compared to the paragraphs for the others. So my question to Grady would be, are you using this Black woman as a symbol of the struggle of many Black women in America over hundreds of years? Or are you subjugating her to being a mere plot device rather than a fully-fledged character? Grady might have great intentions by bringing up these issues, but his writing is shallow and flippant and honestly not believable. And if one was to come to me and argue that this is just a vampire story, I would say Grady needed to just stick with the plot and not think that he could write, you know, the next great American novel. Circling back to how I hardly read horror, it's because I'm not into shock value. I don't want or need gore in a story for it to be chilling. I don't believe something has to make you physically uncomfortable in order to be disturbing. And I find a lot of movies, shows, and books lean heavily on those factors to make something scary. And Grady is no better. We talked about Grady's inadequate handling of racial issues in this novel. What I didn't mention is this book also has a lynching scene. It's horrible, and it's purely there for shock value. And there are many others. For some unknown and random reason, Patricia's son, Blue, is obsessed with Nazis. Why? Who honestly knows? I'm pretty sure it was Grady's way of trying to introduce a topic that's disturbing and uncomfortable to put the reader more on edge in an attempt to make his storyline more scary. For me, it's just annoying, and it didn't fit. 
Then you have the crude way Grady talks about the women, specifically their bodies. Why, oh why, does the word pubes need to be said multiple times and in a negative way? To be fair, he does mention James, the vampire's pubes too. Let's just say women and men can do whatever they want with their bodies. You want to shave, wax, or do nothing? Go right ahead. There's nothing shocking or gross about that. And the fact that Grady tries to use it as a way to make the reader uncomfortable, as a means to further along his goal of making this book disturbing, is ridiculous. And let's not forget that Grady had to write a rape scene, because a horror story can't be complete without some type of physical violation. Please note the extreme sarcasm here. Let me get this out there. I really hate reading about rape. I especially hate reading about rape when it's a man writing about another man raping a woman from that woman's perspective. This scene is unnecessary. And if any writer out there, horror or not, is thinking, hmm, I think my story needs a rape scene to really get my points across, stop, think again. I feel compelled to even discuss how Grady wanted to depict his vampire and his vampire's story. Vampires are a classic horror figure. One could argue that there's key components to a vampire story. For example, vampires can't go out in sunlight. They can only consume blood. And they're solitary creatures. Kudos to Grady for trying to add his own original twist to an age-old tale. But I didn't love it. Grady's vampire is a parasite. He invades everyone's lives and uses it and them for his own gains. And I mean emotionally, mentally, and physically. Which is drastically different than the predator that vampires are typically portrayed as. Grady also gave him this gross, bug-like hinged jaw thing. Could it be a way for him to add more shock value? Unsure, but ew. Just ew. Now, Grady's vampire can control nocturnal animals, which is a shout out to Dracula. And I'll never forget the rat scene in the basement from this book, to be honest. But how Grady even has vampires make other vampires is extremely different and grotesque. For a book that was written as an ode to the author's mother, it really lacks in the portrayal of motherhood. I truly have nothing against male authors. However, in my experience, when a male author is trying to write about womanhood and motherhood, most of the time they fall short. This is because they themselves cannot experience what it's like to birth a human. They can only observe. And that's how it typically comes across, like an outsider's observation. A lot of narratives feel cold and incomplete. And I have to say the same can be said for this book. This coldness shows in the connection Patricia has with her children, and really in the connection all the women have with their children in this book. It shows in how the women's bodies are described. It shows in the rape scene. And it shows in how the power of birth is even mentioned. In one scene, one member of the book club, Slick, says something to the effect of, if you think that man who has never touched the crown of their baby's head coming from their body is stronger than me, you are wrong. Yes, motherhood is one, if not the one, 
of the most powerful things a woman can experience. Birthing, which please note is separate from motherhood, is also an extremely powerful experience for those that can and or want to experience it. Birth really shows you what you can do. So I get where Grady is trying to go with that specific quote. However, have you ever heard of a mom describing her labor as that? This view is a visual one, not a personal experience. Thinking back to the power I felt when I gave birth to my son, I wouldn't describe my labor journey as that. I would describe it as bringing a life into the world. And I did touch my son's head on the way out. (sighs) All right, my rant is done. I mean, I can always go on, but the point has been made. Overall, I don't believe this was a great vampire story. It certainly fell short of its promise to highlight motherhood and womanhood for me, and it missed the mark with its symbolism and treatment of societal issues. I totally may be overanalyzing here, and Grady may have had zero intention of making a social commentary, but in that case, that would mean that he's just ignorant. However, There are many good reviews out there about this book. That's the beauty of books though, isn't it? We can all read the same story and interpret it completely differently. I am really curious to hear what other readers have to say about this book. Did you dislike it or did you like it? And if so, why? Be sure to comment on the website. I'll link that in the episode notes or reach out to me directly. For every book we discuss, I try and choose and support a few charities that relate to the issues that we read. For this book, I've selected three new charities, NAMI, which focuses on mental health, NAACP, which focuses on racial inequality, and Rise Up, which focuses on gender equality and empowerment. These charities have also been added to my website and can be found under the donate section there. Direct links will be shared in the show notes as well. Now, I wanted to try and add a positive and fun segment to this podcast, but I couldn't think of anything related to the book that really fit the bill. So since this podcast is being released on Halloween, let's do some fun trivia on vampires. Researching this was super amusing and fascinating, and now I know way too much information on this topic. So I've come up with five trivia questions for y'all. I'll pause and give you some time to ponder them before revealing the answer to each question. If you really want to get into it and do a little research, go ahead and pause the actual podcast in between. Let's start. The first question. Who is believed to be the inspiration behind the all-time classic vampire, Dracula? The answer is Vlad the Impaler. Vlad or Vlad the Third was the ruler of what is now known as Transylvania, Romania in about the mid-1400s. And the reason that it's believed Dracula is based off of him is because how he treated his enemies. It's rumored that he would impale his enemies on stakes and go as far as to dip his bread in their blood. Very vampire The second question. A group of vampires is called a blink. Now, there are multiple answers for this. It can be brood, clutch, coven, pack, or clan. I'm kind of into the clutch myself. Three, 
there is a specific term for vampire in Chinese. What does it translate to in English? This one's a little eerie. It translates to corpse hopper. Four, what rare disease causes vampire-like symptoms? The answer is porphyria. I kind of nerded out on this one because I'm a nurse by trade. So this disease can cause extreme sensitivity to the sun and sunlight. So much so that if a patient were to go outside with this disease, they could form severe blisters. And if they had an aggressive version of this disease, the patient's teeth would even turn a ruddy brown color. And five, the last question. Is Count von Count from Sesame Street based on an actual vampire myth? The answer, yes. Some European myths state that vampires have a compulsion to count spilled seeds and grain if they were to come across it. Therefore, people would spill seeds or grain outside of their homes with the intent to keep vampires occupied until the sun came up. I love that question. That one's my favorite. Another fun fact about Count von Count is that they modeled him after the actor who played in the original Dracula movie. I've already received a few questions from listeners and wanted to address some of them in a sort of mailbag segment. So the first question is, when is the next episode of the podcast coming? This podcast will release a new episode every third Tuesday of the month, unless a bonus episode such as this one drops. Therefore, the next episode is going to be live on November 16th. The one after that will be December 21st. The second question is somewhat related. It's, what are we reading next? The next book will be The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. December's is still to be determined. If you haven't read The Four Winds, I strongly encourage you to do so. I adore the author and this book. Just make sure you have plenty of tissues nearby. And the third one, how do you find time as a busy mom to read? This is a great question. I have always loved reading. Something about getting lost in another world or another time centers me. So reading is part of me time. I am a firm believer, although let's be real, I am not always great at executing this myself, that your cup needs to be full before you can fill anyone else's. In other words, you can't be the best version of yourself if you aren't taking care of yourself. So although it may seem impossible, and trust me, some days it is. It's vital to carve out at least an hour or two for yourself. There's a reason that this podcast was only an idea for so many months. It's because I just didn't have enough time for me. What changed? Well, it helps that Roe is older now, but my husband and I were also able to adapt a bit of our daily routine to make more time for each other and more time for each of us to have alone time. For example, we used to do both the bath time and bedtime routine all together. This required leaving dishes from dinner right in the sink and then having to clean up after Ro went to bed. It was exhausting and didn't leave much time for anything else in the evenings. In other words, it was killing us. We recently reassessed and decided that we both still want to be there for bedtime, but bath time we could totally divide and conquer. 
so we alternate every other night who does bath and who cleans up. This has allowed us so much more free time. Basically, right after to bed, we have no more obligations and can do whatever we want. I guess that if a parent or caregiver was looking for advice from me on how to make time, I would say, don't forget that you're in charge of the daily schedule. Just because you've been doing something for X amount of time doesn't mean you can't change that to fit your life better. Things change and that's okay. I also want to note this is my experience and I have a partner at home. Not everyone does and y'all are still crushing it. Hearing from listeners and followers of the Lone Mama Book Club brings me so much joy. So keep reaching out. You can DM me on Instagram at Lone Mama Books or email me directly at info at LoneMamaBookClub.com. I would even love to hear some book suggestions from all of you. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share to get the word out and support this podcast. Again, next episode will be released November 16th and we'll be covering The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. Looking forward to having everyone tune in and thank you for being here. Until next time, later mamas. Later mamas.